0: Have you been watching that Netflix yes. documentary?
1: <laughs> yes. So and now I'm like free tea pain and <laughs> manuatia te tea pain all day. Let's do that. Can you chuck some auto tune? Yeah, I can make that.
2: He can do that. Kia ora This is gone by lunchtime. My name is Toby Mann. Hi, uh, no, my, hi, my. Hello, Annabelle Lee Mather.
1: Tenakwe Toby. Tenakoto.
2: Tenakoto. Tenakoto we Katoa. We're also welcoming, before I get to Ben, Ti here, who's uh, on the tools uh, with us and has joined the spin off team. Very glad to have him.
0: He's on the, the spin off producer Fast Track to Glory.
1: Yeah, destined yes. for greatness. Everybody now.
0: who has produced Gone by Lunchtime has gone on to just stratospheric achievements. It's true. Mm. It's true. Mad Chapman. Yep, former yep. gone by lunchtime producer. Mm-hmm. Now, what? Governor future. General. Jonathan. Now, now, Jonathan. now, now basically, now, now basically has like ripped out Toby's heart and eating it and has becomes the right full time spit of off them. editor. That's right. In what, October? Jonathan's September? now
1: September. a big rock star now, touring That's right. New Zealand and everything. He Named a band, a band after me, The Bells. Yep, the Bells.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about, um, we're going to solve COVID 19. We're going to solve hate speech. Um, uh, we might solve UN Declaration on the rights of indigenous people. We'll solve that, and we might solve also the National Party if we have time. Uh, COVID feels a bit like a stuck record, but we have. I was, it was interesting to see on Friday Scott Morrison, who's dealing with a massive outbreak in Australia, which has seen half the country going into a lockdown, announced a, a roadmap, which is one of the one of the official sort of terminological staples of modern political discourse. We haven't haven't had many rafts of measures, I've noticed lately. We've had a lot of roadmaps, a lot of rollouts, a lot of ramping up. The thing is we've moved past... But not many rafts of measures. We've moved past the
0: blueprint stage. Now we've got a roadmap.
2: Roadmap. Uh, His roadmap is for the stages to uh, emerge out of COVID-19. Four phases, blah, 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 um, which include what looks at this point to be a rather optimistic aim to have the vaccine available to all Australians by the end of the year. But what it has done is it has sort of uh, laid out uh, a sort of a a vision, I guess, or a a scaffold for how Australia opens up. Um, And there's, uh, I think there's growing pressure and there will be growing pressure over the months to come in New Zealand to see something similar to that. Of course, our vaccine uh, rollout is running slightly ahead of the schedule, but it's still one of the slowest in the developed world. Um... Do you think, Ben, that this is something that is going to grow in terms of pressure? It strikes me that, for example, just with the fact of Australia talking about even in the medium term opening up to Singapore puts some pressure on the idea of the trans-Tasman bubble. If our strategy is to be more cautious in terms of opening up and Australia opens up, then that kind of breaks our own bubble structure.
0: Yeah, Nikki McDonald <laughs> did a really good piece um, for stuff. Was it on Friday bubbles. or Saturday? Yeah. I think it
2: was on the weekend,
0: yeah. And it was about the sorts of options that we've got. Because I think the really salient part of the Morrison roadmap blueprint um, technical drawing mm. was the pointers learn to live with the virus. Um, and it did not anticipate a point at which there will just be no COVID in Australia and COVID will be kept out forever. Um, increasingly, that's looking with, you know, the variants that are coming up that, may, you know, a long-term elimination isn't practical in a global sense. It's certainly not practical while the rich world hoards all the vaccines and these variants just sort of develop like in Petri dishes in developing countries. Um, and, you know, at some point New Zealand is going to have to confront that idea, you know, the choice between, are we a walled off, hermetic, lost island of Atlantis in the middle of the Pacific that is COVID free, but basically disentangled from the rest of the world, um, or do we assume that once we've reached a certain level of the population vaccinated that it essentially becomes like the flu there'll be a you know a few hundred covid deaths per year as we currently have with influenza and and we try and sort of you know carry on as normal. Um, and I, I think that the government doesn't really know where they want to go on this yet. Um, the Prime Minister has sort of talked about, we want to give ourselves as many options as possible. And I think they're just kind of delaying it for as long as possible. So I think the, the slow vaccine rollout doesn't actually hurt them in that respect.
2: Yeah, and they've, I, mean, there's, I think Sir David Roche is, is chairing a, a group that's looking at some of those questions at the moment. But I guess the the reality, Annabella, is that there isn't exactly a groundswell of no. people who are demanding to open up the borders. You, know why? you hear from some people, but most people just aren't.
1: You know why? It's because the Herald did such a good job reporting on that family of gypsies that came here when we still <laughs> had tourists. <laughs> That now we're like, do we oh. really want that again, but with them having COVID as well?
0: Yeah, I, 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 we pursued a successful elimination <laughs> strategy for the bad family. <laughs> now we can't lose all those. The honorary tourists, I think that's their correct
1: name, isn't it? Um, I think the delayed approaches. I mean, they can afford to do that, can't they? And it's probably wise to look and see what happens to those other countries as they as they open up. But like um, Rawiri, um, Jansen said, I don't think that it's conscionable to be even considering it until at least 85% of the Māori population has had the chance to be, um, to be vaccinated. But the other thing too is, I mean, why not be ambitious and set some goals like let's not open up until we have... Um, um, until we have no more kids living in hotels hmm. or um, until we have um, addressed child poverty so that we really give um, our tamariki the best chance of um, of surviving a, in a COVID environment if we do infect um um, stop pursuing an elimination strategy but from the sounds of it, that's not what they're planning to do, is it? The elimin- elimination strategy will remain, I think that's what well, there was Chris the, Hipkins said on RNZ this morning.
2: There was the modelling that um, uh, TPM did last week, Sean Hendy and co, uh, that showed some quite, showed that on the basis of their modelling, 97% of New Zealanders would need to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity in the face of Delta, the Delta variant which is obviously a for all practical purposes, an impossibility. But I think also there's sometimes a... That's based on the idea that you just open up completely and you have no measures, and that Mm. herd immunity is predicated on basically having nothing, not not a face mask, not a social distance, but also presumably what will happen in the real world is you will have things like opening up to, you know, green, orange, red countries in terms of their... Risk uh, profiles, vaccine passports, uh, vaccine passports isolation at home—these are the, some of the things that, that Morrison talked about. Actually, I mean it was kind of a weird thing for him to be doing while the COVID was kind of streaming down the streets of Sydney. But the, uh, that, that is one of the realities: is that 14 days in a MIQ facility might turn into seven days if you've got two doses of, a, of an approved vaccine. And then seven days at home, for example. You know, there are there are ways that will it'll start to shift, right?
0: Yeah, and I think, as Annabelle said, you know, in New Zealand there isn't this kind of real groundswell for mm. it. Most people do actually seem pretty perfectly happy to adopt this kind of sort of little New Zealand sort of mindset um, where we just live blissfully away from the rest of the world. Um, it's, it's not really a realistic option long term. I think that's um, true,
2: but I think also there is I mean, just this is taking on a this is only anecdata. But when I talk to people who aren't glued to the COVID updates anymore because they have life to get on with, they start, they talk about how they, that trip they'd put off they're going to do next year. And like, I don't think you are.
0: The, the pressure <laughs> you know, is there is come from the middle the, classes who are absolutely. missing their, yeah. their yearly uh, overseas trip. In particular, where the government has really benefited and what's been really good for the morale of the team of 5 million or whatever has been, we've had the photos of 30,000 people at a 660 concert, Um, everyone in America is masked up, stuck at home. The government, you know, in in that sense, the government's been bought a bit more time by the resurgences, thanks to Delta, um, especially in the UK. In the US, uh, things actually seem to be going along pretty well um, in terms of their reopening up. Um, In the UK, they seem to have basically given up and they're sort of like, well, we'll keep vaccinating and in the interim, a bunch of people will die from the variant. Um, But at the same time, the images that we are getting over here will be more and more of life as normal Mm. in countries that we consider our peers. And at that point, I think the FOMO might start kicking in uh, with particularly the voters that Labour are most interested in.
1: I think we need to remember, too, that we have an additional responsibility to our Pacifica whanaunga because New Zealand is a gateway to the Pacific. So really, until they've they've managed to get all of their... um, populations adequately vaccinated as well. Um, And uh, you only have to look at what's happening in Fiji now. Absolutely heartbreaking Mm. to see how COVID can rip through a Pacific island.
2: Mm. Mm. Um, Particularly with outlying areas that are affected there where the normal sort of systems and approaches that take place in a place like New Zealand are much harder just because of the... You know the facilities and the infrastructure and outlying, even
1: yeah, stuff like thing. having enough ventilators yeah. and you know all that kind of basic hospital gear that we take for granted here. Um,
2: we need to, I suppose, talk as a as a podcast has gone by lunchtime, executive editorial board about this. It feels like these hate speech proposals feel like a direct attack on our ability to come together and. Um, you know, talk
1: about the boomers Talk
2: about you I mean Ben you you particularly you like to wake up in the morning and uh, um, issue as many tweets as you can attacking Karen's and boomers
0: I seems I, quite targeted I was very disturbed uh, by the comments by the Justice Minister in his otherwise incredibly uninformative interview on the nation where he sort of really refused to commit either way um, on examples of what counts as hate speech. And he said that, you know, attacks on boomers... Uh, you know, it would only count as hate speech if it was done, you know, if, if it was hateful commentary. Mine is all hateful. I was going to say, you know, that's
1: definitely you.
0: I, and Even I, when it
2: seems nice, it's hateful, isn't it, if you peel the layers back?
0: Oh, underneath is just an icicle of yeah. malice yeah. that mm. informs every one of my... everything I do towards the mm. elderly generation. Um,
2: Even the way you're looking at me now feels... Oh, uh, look... ...like hate speech.
0: Like, 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 if... You know the the MRI scan of my brain when I think of boomers <laughs> is just like a Hieronymus Bosch painting, just imagining their fiery demise. Um, and so, yeah, I'm I'm worried about these these laws, mm. which seem to do nothing to inflict misery on boomers, mm. but seem to target patriotic New Zealanders like me.
2: Annabelle. <laughs> <laughs> This hate speech thing has kind of become hard to get a grip on. I mean, one of the things it's important to remember is these are proposals, right? Like, it's not, for better or worse, maybe it's maybe it's been badly handled, and I certainly don't think that Chris Farfour, who you mentioned, or even Jacinda Ardern were exactly um, uh, paragons of clarity in terms of the way they spoke about this. But there are a bunch of, I think there are five different laws that cover this sort of territory, Post the royal commission, there was a recommend into the into the um, mosque attacks in Christchurch. There was a recommendation to uh, basically kind of clarify, elucidate the um, existing hate speech laws. Seems like a reasonable thing to open up a conversation on. But at the moment, personally, it just feels like it's kind of like much more heat than light.
1: It is a completely reasonable conversation, but as always, the boomers and the Karens are like <laughs> wigging out in a major way. I, I think, um, you know, the, whole, the every piece of legislation that gets passed in New Zealand has to be measured against the Bill of Rights Act. So freedom of speech is in there, so presumably it's going to continue to be protected. And while the rollout of it in terms of the, you know, Farfoy's interview and that was obviously not stellar, it is time for us to have this conversation. Ironically, the people who love freedom of speech so much are also the same people who wig out when Meng Foon talks about racism or calls someone racist. And he's the race relations conciliator.
0: No reason to hate racists?
1: (laughs) So, you know, the whole freedom of of speech argument, it's an interesting one in the New Zealand context because freedom of speech um, is not applied equally because when when Taika Waititi says New Zealand's racist AF, New Zealand wigs out, Mm. and the Free Speech Coalition remains silent. When Renee Mahe is getting dragged off to court by Bob Jones... Um, for calling him out on an article that's riddled with hurtful, hateful um, remarks about Māori. She gets dragged off to court Where's the Free Speech Coalition? Nowhere to be found. So I think there's also a, a disc. I think everybody needs to calm down. You're still going to get to be mean to people. But we should be looking at how we provide protection for some of our most um, vulnerable, vulnerable communities who are the subject of hateful, hurtful remarks, getting called leeches and all of that stuff. That's not designed to encourage. Um, Conversation or other, it's just there to denigrate people, and the right to free speech doesn't exist on its own. People also have the right to live an unharassed life. So,
2: hmm. uh, one of the, I mean, one of the things, I mean, I think that I agree with every word of that. I would also say though that one of the things that would be useful to add into the conversation, if it's ever possible to have a proper conversation about these things, is looking at proposals and proposed legislation not in terms of the. Uh, government we have now and the authorities we have now, but in terms of one down the road which may be more (coughs) authoritarian, not fully authoritarian, but just more authoritarian in tone. You know, like we need to imagine that these laws would also apply at a time where people who are in the, the state, for want of a better word, might be...
1: Well, uh, I, I reckon tougher. if I was to hazard a guess, if anybody was to get charged first under any new proposed laws, it would probably be Māori because that's how it works here. We'd, oh, we'd, we'd probably yeah. be the first to be discriminated against. But there should, but we still need to look at the. Um, it, it's still mm. a process mm. w- worth going through.
0: In any time you create, the, you know, new draconian powers or extend the powers that exist ultimately they will end up being used on the least powerful, not the most powerful. Like that, that's just a pretty much ironclad law of government. Mm. The, You know, it, it probably it is worth having that debate, right, because I think in the wake of Christchurch, there would be very few people who would disagree if the Prime Minister or the Justice Minister went on one of these shows and said, what we want to make illegal is somebody, you know, putting up a YouTube video saying... Jews slash Muslims slash Christians are vermin and should be driven out of New Zealand. We want that to be a criminal offence, right? I don't think anyone in the public would disagree with that, or or some some free speech sort of maximalists might disagree with it and say, on principle, we think you should be allowed to say anything, whatever. On the other hand, you know, but, but, you know, that's not what's happening. Instead, do you remember that um, it was an interview with Hana Tamaki when she, I think, when they first started their political party and it might have been Lisa Rowan asked her about a policy thing, and she just sort of coquettishly looked at the camera and said, not telling. <laughs> and that's what I think <laughs> of whenever I see Dern asked about these hate speech laws. You know, they say, well, we're, go- we're going to criminalise speech which is currently not criminal or currently not prosecuted, or we're going to raise the threshold. Um and then interviewers say, well, could you tell us what kind of speech you intend to criminalise? And they're no. like, <laughs> no, no, we won't. <laughs> and
1: but isn't that because it's going to get, just because they're not being prescriptive because the process still has to happen and they have to have the submissions and all of that sort of stuff?
0: Yeah, but I mean, I there's th- not even a draft bill, you know, there's... Mm. I, I don't think it's, you know, the, the the Prime Minister has said that there are certain things that Cabinet is contemplated and certain things that they don't think should be in there, for instance political opinion, mm. but they're still consulting on them. I don't think it's too much of an ask for the for them to say in broad strokes, the kinds of speech that they want to be made a criminal offence. Or like, like to have been more crazy. clear on the
2: things that they are absolutely clear should not be made a criminal offence. Yeah. That's that's the thing that they could have handled much better, I think, at but, the but,
1: but this is where it gets difficult, though, because like if you look at that guy that did the YouTube video the other day and he was like, you know, kill the Māori Party, burn down all the Marais, death to all Māori, all of that sort of stuff. I mean, he could argue that that's political speech. I think that because would be covered it references by existing, a I mean, that's inciting... But that's where it it. it blurs, Mm. I guess, because you can't say, you know, is all political speech out because what if it's like I want to kill the MP for, I don't know, whatever. Do you know what I mean?
0: Uh, No, yeah, but that's why I think even though there's no way obviously for any kind of speech laws that you can cover every eventuality and prescribe it entirely, you know, there will always be, there will always be questions of fact for the courts to determine. But it's not crazy to just sort of ask, you know, what is a clear-cut example of something that you think should be criminal? What's a clear-cut example of something you think should not be criminal? Um, you know, Farfoy has said, oh, we want to leave it to the courts. Those will be questions for the courts. Well, the court is there to interpret Parliament's intention. That's its job, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to apply it to the facts in front of it. So it helps to have some idea of Parliament's intention. And the the, the idea that I get from the government right now is that the Prime Minister and and those around her sort of have this feeling that they would quite like some of these things to be a little bit more criminalised than they are right now. A lot of the speech that they find sort of distasteful or, you know, they find hurtful or or mean, but they don't want to explicitly criminalise it. They want to be pleasantly surprised by the court's interpretation, and they want to just sort of slide this kind of through on the sly Mm. and and then kind of, you know, throw the ball to the courts and then... (sighs) You know, wake up one morning. I don't. I don't get that. I don't. That I
2: don't get that impression at all. I mean, I think that what they're doing is responding to some recommendations through the Royal Commission report and trying to be as kind of uh, non-committal as possible. I don't think that this is some kind of stealthy attempt to sneak in attempts to protect their own <laughs>
0: hides. No, I, I, no, no. I just think it's. I think it's a kind of passive sort of way of. Kind of gently easing forward the sorts of uh, etiquette, social expectations that they prefer. um, You know, in terms of, you know, because one of the things you were talking about is yeah, rude language, being mean about people, Um, and and this is why this you know this debate has to be had, and unfortunately, it's a very unpleasant one Mm. because we actually have to talk about which of these rude, dehumanising. Cruel, upsetting, degrading kinds of terms, you know, we think should be criminal on the face of it. Mm. You know, and unfortunately, it's better to have that conversation before we pass a law Mm. that we don't quite know the meaning of than afterwards. And that's going to be a really awful conversation. Yeah. Because you actually have to have. People standing up and saying, well, actually, I do or I don't think that a poll about whether Laurel Hubbard should compete in the Olympics is hate speech. Mm. You know, we at least need to nail down what Parliament thinks of those sorts of things Mm. because we know the kinds of complaints that are going to be received by the police. We know what people want to use this law for once it's passed. And we've got to have those, you know, horrible conversations
2: Three waters uh, has been another reform, uh, which you look very excited about, <laughs> Annabelle. Um, three waters being um, stormwater, wastewater, and Sylvia, Sylvania waters. Thank <laughs> you. And uh, drinking water. Back, that's going back a bit. Um, the proposal laid out by Nana Mahuta would see, I think it's 67 different... Sort of council territories, as far as water is concerned, turned into four kind of regional regional bodies that oversee the the water infrastructure. One of them would be all of the South Island <laughs> and a little bit of the, the maybe even a little bit of the. I'm not sure. I can't remember. Anyway, the, 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 the
0: set, 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 well, no the well, the proposal yeah is for. The proposal is for a uh, one of the regions is is the Naitahi Naitahu Takiwa.
2: Oh, that's right, because there was a debate around whether or not it was ownership or governance, right?
0: Remember mm. that? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. We re- we remember. <laughs> I've never seen anyone so look less excited and about more a important discussion than about. everyone else. So we have a
1: whole <laughs> a whole
0: one. Mm. And then, kind of, what the e- the eastern seaboard of the North Island, the western seaboard, and then Auckland. Basically, Auckland North,
2: and that sounds that's how, that sounds regions A through D about right. And the idea here is to try and get the councils to opt in, but we've already had, already had I think I think Whangarei Councils saying no, we don't want a piece of that. Phil Goff has kind of been a bit well. We've actually sorted our water. Thank you very much. Um, Have we?
1: Uh, Aren't we still uh, on the waiting list?
2: There's that They're building that massive new pipe. They've got a big pipe. Oh, we've got the a pipe. The no, 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 we've got a pipe. We've got, Well, no, the
1: pipe's not there pipe. yet. Yeah. But compared to, oh, say, for example, pipe,
0: there aren't pipes we're getting routinely a pipe. bursting. It sounds way really cooler than just a pipe. You know, it's like a onto interceptor. the interceptor. It's like, what is it? It's a
1: pipe. It's an interceptor. <laughs> it's a really fucking <laughs> a big, big pipe.
0: pipe. Um, the the It sounds like a high-tech 80s car that fights crime. Yeah. Yeah. The...
1: Something David Hasselhoff
2: would have, like, yeah, driven uh, around in. Like, well, Kit could, take, could drive down the Kit central Kit was pretty and mean. And
1: Kit was pretty mean, to be fair.
2: The Ben, is this part of your overall strategy to just destroy mm-hmm. all local body mm-hmm. politics?
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I mean obviously I don't have a strategy i I have a I have a vision that comes to me in dreams mm. um, on stormy nights of a mm. better world where there is no lo- no local government. Um, yeah well I removing border or well not so much removing because I think the proposal is that the councils in toto will still own these entities. Mm. So they'll they'll still own all their infrastructure and be
2: represented
0: on the bodies and, and they'll be blah, represented blah, blah. by th- by their own yeah. representatives. And yeah. I think what is it fifty fifty iwi uh, local council rep- representation, but the ownership will stay with the uh, local bodies um, of
1: the infrastructure. Of
0: the of, of, well, yeah, and I think of the entity that owns the infrastructure. So the So when you have, if if you, when they have this new Auckland North entity, it will own all of the pipes that are currently, you know, Watercare and Northland and that sort of thing. And then that entity will be owned by Auckland Council, Far North District Council, you know, all those, um, all those guys. But but it won't it won't be directly owned by the councils in the same way that it is now. Um, but the the more important thing is that management and governance of that infrastructure will be taken away from, you know, directly the elected representatives who and, have made such a fucking dogs breakfast. And is that
2: is that a theme? You know, because I'm just if you look at some of the things in this term, we're talking about the the removal of. DHBs and one mm. central organised national health service. You look at the kind of some of the uh, the national policy statements. Is that what they're called? You know, in terms in terms of what's being um, uh, what the councils being uh, mandated T- to provide put six, um, six stories within a fifteen. I mean, is, is, is this a theme of the government? Yeah, absolutely.
0: And the, and the RMA uh, reforms. Um, which the these very very broad sort of non detailed exposure drafts were released this week, and I think w- one of the things that the government was suggesting was that um, r- uh, all planning for districts would be done by I think about sort of tw- was it twelve different bodies rather than you know the sixty seven there currently are or a hundred mm. once you put in the regional councils. Um, and and there would be a lot more sort of, um, yeah, the, it would be centralised on a regional basis. So, yeah, ab- absolutely, they're definitely uh, taking steps to get rid of this sort of very highly localised um Resource and infrastructure responsibility that the councils have currently, um, which is probably a good thing, in that, you know, right now we have these tiny bodies with, you know, I think I was on a radio panel or something with the local government New Zealand guy and he said, you know, we have you know our eight thousand members who are you know who are who sit on councils and local boards. And You're like there aren't eight thousand competent people in New oh. Zealand who know oh. how to do like infrastructure planning you know, and the, the, urban the, you know You want to have rural planning.
2: Have, you want to have devolved grassroots democracy. Sometimes you're going to have
0: some numpties. Almost always, if you're basically selecting from a small town's small business people who have time to be mayor on the side of their butchery or grocer's business. Um, you know, they are sort of hollowing out um, the powers of local government and it's it's not before time. Annabelle.
1: Uh, I have a slightly different view to Ben because I think that being politically accountable is... Is a good thing, and that um, when someone manages your assets and does a bad job of it, that you get to vote them out afterwards. And that's obviously what's not going to happen with this one. I am a little bit concerned about what it means for hapu and iwi who might manage their own water sources if um, if they are getting managed by a giant entity that sits way outside their takiwa, and you know, in terms of compliance issues. In terms of the running of uh, infrastructure around those water sources, who becomes responsible um, for the the upkeep of them? And I think you know, whenever you um, take or move power up and further away from communities, that tends to be um, problematic. So, so there's some concerns around that and what it'll mean for iwi, you know, and how the people on these that will take the governance positions are they going to be crown appointees or it's not really clear at the moment and then you know if um if it's broken up into four regional sort of groups, does that kind of end up opening the door for privatization you know when national comes back in who have long wanted to privatised water under Bill Birch and all of that sort of stuff, you know, does it make it a little bit easier to do that? So those are some of the...
2: Yeah. I mean, Mahuta's ruled that out, but, 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 but what you're saying but is the But they're not going to be in government be more, forever, yeah, so the, yeah. the
1: structure definitely seems like it would enable that to happen a lot more easily if there was a political desire to do so. Um,
2: Hapuapua continues to, to ripple around in the news. Uh, Willie Jackson appeared on Friday to talk about it's not hipperper it's not hipperper he said but it's a response to the hippo, of course itself was a response to New Zealand signing up to the UN declaration on the rights of indigenous people are we calling that this important question is that undrip is that how you say that out loud or is it UN you call it UN drip you call it UN drip UN drip is that kay. okay okay um,
1: good to know mm.
2: at about uh, Willie Jackson then sort of disappeared a bit uh, after making the sort of the announcement he announced a new consultation I period. I think, to be fair, he,
1: he just had a mokopuna born, so really? that might be oh, very well, congratulations.
2: Is he Congratulations. Is he coming on the hui to talk about it?
1: Uh, probably in a couple of weeks, okay. yeah.
2: Um, there's been some criticism about the nature of the new consultation, um, but the idea is to speak to Māori first about what it would look like and then take it from there.
1: Mm. I did, my, the the thing that I wanted to to, to talk about is oh. that the the um you know how it's being described by some politicians as separatism that the the idea of co governance or treaty partnership at a governance level being separatism and I'm just like wondering do they understand what the word separate means because partnership is about including hmm. another person separatism is when you just want to have one group, so actually what they're proposing is separatism.
2: So it's about marriage rather than separation pending divorce.
1: Well, it's just like when one person wants to hog all the power, that's mm. actually separatism, right. not including the Indigenous people.
2: Um, let's talk about another centre of severe separatism, the National Party. Uh, the it seems like there's quite a lot of it's quite a fertile ground for opposition at the moment because there's a lot happening um, but of most of the stories that involve the national party are kind of these incredible airport bestseller <laughs> stories about what's going on in the caucus room we had um, Janet Wilson who was the, the 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 head of head of comms for uh, Todd Muller and then Judith Collins through the campaign. Um, who kind of I uh, sort of sometimes watched her during the campaign and it looked like she was almost completely Gee, she looked very over it all <laughs> I'm going to say but but um but you know uh, she she had some kind of had some sharp words for um the current approach of the national party. I was um, a little
0: disappointed by that because uh, I've got a lot of I've got a lot of respect for Janet. Uh, she's a great yeah. operator. It's amazing. Um I saw the headline, and I was like, she's going to spill dirt about the campaign. But then she just criticised how they're doing now, which is, we can all do that. You just look at them. They're fucking hopeless. (laughs) You know, like, I want want some inside word. Oh, I see. You were disappointed by the lack of... I want some gory tales about the campaign trail. I want, like, you know, being in the car when a vein bursts in Todd Muller's, like, temple. I want, you know?
2: Yeah, you want to hear just what, Choice words were used when Judith Collins was in the car after the Ponsonby Road procession. I want to, you know,
0: I want to tell all to be a Mm. tell all. Not you want
2: hate speech. Not yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) not enough hate speech. Um, And then your old mate, your old gaffer, Ben Thomas, Chris Finlayson was, um, you know, who's who's the kind of you know the cerebral. The cerebral centre of the <laughs> National Party—that's the-
0: real funny, eh? Because he—he he was uh, that happened because he was talking to Florence Kerr, mm. who's a, a very good member of the National Correspondence Team uh, at Stuff. Yes, and she—she's doing a feature about uh, something, you know, something else that he's been involved in. And then at the end, I think she—I <laughs> think she said, you know, oh, what do you think about what's going on, mm. <laughs> Go on in National? <laughs> Obviously, he didn't have any further appointments that day because we <laughs> 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 went on a tear. Right, right. Yeah.
2: I know sometimes, you know, brands go off, but I've never seen brand destruction like I've seen in the National Party in this year or two, and he's got no sympathy for them. And then he said it was one of those great things. He said, put that in your article. I was like, all right, <laughs> I'll put it in my article um it's a pretty i mean it you sort of you see less of this sort of stuff than you, in in New Zealand just i think because of the size of of the of of the parliament than you do in like in Britain or in the US where you get lots of you know the the kind of old guard the big beasts of the parties sort of looking back and derisively over the current crew but that's quite it's not good
0: i don't know if you've seen the national party recently but it's not good oh. <laughs> it's i mean you know, well, you know, is Chris Finlayson going to be hung, drawn, and quartered for telling the truth mm. for re- refusing to free
1: speech? <laughs> li- <laughs> yeah, refusing homies. to lie
0: through his teeth and say things are going great with the old firm. Um, you know, I mean, the, but the the other interesting thing is that while well, you know it was pretty strong language, um, and a lot of people got like quite a lot of catharsis out of it. Again, it didn't tell you anything that you don't already know just from looking at them, Mm. right, which is... um, I thought it was interesting that some people saw that as a really searing condemnation of Collins and her leadership when, in fact, what I took from the published comments was um, what the hell is Peter Goodfellow still doing there? Right, (laughs) yeah, yeah.
2: Um,
0: In terms of the candidate selections and just this this overwhelming sort of slop bucket of losers that they've had to contend with <laughs> as either candidates or MPs that have to just be sloughed off into the street whenever, whenever their texting predilections or identity theft come to light.
2: In about one of the suggestions made by Claire Trevette who's the now the political editor of The Herald, in her column on the weekend was that what the National Party needs is it's Andrew Little. Like, it needs someone who's kind of gonna put in lots of engine room work and get things back to a place where somebody with more charisma can come in and, and, and then and then drive the thing through the through the ticket tape. Um, do you think that's the solution? What is your what is the Annabelle Lee Matha uh, prospectus for fixing the National Party and what is your alley rate? I
1: think Ben's already said it, like the fish rots from the head, so I think really it needs to start with Peter Goodfellow and the board.
0: Had, had <laughs> we met last time we met for this podcast? Had the had Mueller been excised? I don't think he had. No, we were still in grappling with fashion? Nick Smith. Yeah, and we we were saying, you know, maybe Judith's just trying to get her eye in, just trying right. to level herself out by yeah. knee someone, and um, and now it's just turning into sort of House of a Thousand Corpses in the mm. <laughs> parliamentary opposition mm. wing.
2: I mean, it is you're you're in a, you're in a bit of a pickle where you're example setting is to excise to decapitate the the leaker because you need to show everybody that you can't have leaks and this is how it's going to be from now on and then every detail about that process is summarily leaked by other people in your caucus right
0: yeah all the, look i thought Claire's column was completely right they need somebody to just like Andrew Little did just focus on the on getting the, the, the caucus working as a unit, getting them disciplined, sorting themselves out internally, rather than trying to make a, a grand bid for to overtake Jacinda in popularity, which is, is not going to happen under the current leadership or any prospective leadership they have in their caucus right now. And look, there's a tiny chance that Judith's purge might do it. You know, I mean, lo- loyalty through through a terror campaign can still be loyalty, you know. <laughs> can be if, quite
1: a compelling proposition. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, if you know, if, if, I,
2: if I were... If you want I, to be loved and feared, but if you can't be loved, it's better to be feared.
0: Yeah, if I were any of the people who have been sort of, you know, getting glowing profile pieces about their own individual efforts... Which I understand don't make the leadership particularly happy. You know, I'd probably be, I'd probably have a buddy system for going to the bathroom. I'd look, <laughs> look, look both ways before I cross the street. wouldn't sort of dawdle in traffic. Ah. Um, and, and, you know, if, if everybody in the National Caucus is just so terrified of the, of Judith in beast mode, just, <laughs> you know, fixing on them to end their careers. Um, you know, maybe that will get them all focused on, on the job at hand. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a high chance, but it's a chance.
2: Thank you, Ben. <laughs> Thank you, Annabelle. Thank you, I here. Thank you to spinoff members who are very much the wind beneath our wings.
1: Yo da Etewi,
0: Butler here, podcast manager at the Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our Mahi by signing up to become a spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.